Hello, my name is Jaran Sobajolu and I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Amsterdam at the Developmental Psychology Department. So deficit thinking is almost like blaming the victim for anything negative they might be experiencing. And in acculturation research, a lot of the research looks at the minority groups and their adaptations, psychological outcomes. And if they're experiencing, let's say, stress, then it must be their fault. This paper helps us counteract deficit thinking because it takes the whole responsibility from the minority groups and distributes it over different groups. So it's not just on them to adapt, to change, to acculturate. It's a relational and interactive phenomenon. everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Researching Diversity podcast. I am Sabrina Alanashi, an educational scientist. Today, Jana and I are hosting Jaren Abadjeoglu, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Amsterdam at the Developmental Psychology Department. We talked to Jaren about how she became interested in the topic of acculturation and more specifically minority acculturation. She shares her experiences about her arrival in the Netherlands and the challenges she faced in academia as a member of a minority group. Besides these topics, we also talked about the paper by Kunst and colleagues, named The Missing Side of Acculturation, How Majority Group Members Relate to Immigrant and Minority Group Cultures. Jeren mentioned that most research on acculturation is focused on the adaptation of minority people, making them completely responsible for the challenges and inequalities that they face. According to Jaren, acculturation needs to be seen as a relational and interactive phenomenon. The paper that she discusses helps counteract deficit thinking because it takes the whole responsibility from minority groups and distributes it to different groups. I really enjoyed our talk. I hope you do too. So let's start with the episode. Well, welcome, Jaren. Thank you for being here with us. And yeah, it's an honor to have you here with us in this episode of the Researching Diversity podcast. As in every episode, we'll start talking about the past. Why did you become interested in the topic of acculturation? Thank you, Sabrina. Thank you, Jana. I'm really glad to be here. Uh, so the topic I'm currently studying is acculturation, as you just mentioned. And maybe let's start by explaining what acculturation is, because our listeners might not be familiar with this word. So acculturation is the process of change that happens in individuals or in groups upon extended first-hand intercultural contact. So let's say you move from one country to another and the new country has different customs, values, beliefs than your home country, and you adopt some of these new values and customs. For instance, if you move to the Netherlands, you learn to communicate a bit more directly just so that it's a bit more efficient for you within the Netherlands. So most research on acculturation focuses on the adaptation of minority groups with a Turkish and Moroccan heritage in the Netherlands. And because I'm also from Turkey, I've gotten interested in this debate around minority acculturation when I first arrived at the Netherlands for my master's degree. At the time, I was trying quite hard to adapt to a new educational and social context myself. I had the scholarship that I didn't want to lose because that would mean that I would have to interrupt my education, go back to Turkey, which is not, of course, ideal. And then I realized I am not necessarily getting much guidance from my own institution as to how I can navigate this new cultural terrain, right? Like what are the norms around a good student? What would make a good research paper? What's a good assignment? 
Where can I go if I need to ask for help? What are some evaluation criteria and so on? So I had to learn these by trial and error myself. And um, it was at times quite stressful, of course, because my adaptation, yeah, doesn't take place in a vacuum. It also depends on what kind of guidance I get, what kind of support I get, who I'm interacting with and so on. And similarly, the adaptation of the minority groups in the Netherlands does not happen in a vacuum, right? It takes place within a certain context, in relation to other people, within a sociopolitical context at large. At some point, I felt like my experiences showed some parallels to that of the minority groups that are the focus of acculturation debate. And based on these experiences, I've become interested in understanding the process of acculturation as an interactive and relational process. Interesting. Thank you for sharing this with us or your process of uh, coming from Turkey to the Netherlands and the challenges that you had. And why did you then become a researcher? We are interested in this process, but why then in terms of being a researcher? That's a very profound question. I think the main reason was to kind of make sense of my own experiences of life and in life. So I chose psychology as a broad field to study. And I also wanted to be able to have an impact on my environment, especially on topics that had a direct effect on me. So I would say that me becoming a diversity researcher, at least, is very much motivated by this move from Turkey to the Netherlands and becoming part of an ethnic minority group, whereas I was part of the ethnic majority group back in Turkey. So you saw like both sides being a majority group or part of a majority group and in the other country, in the Netherlands, being part of the minority group. So that's nice to have this perspective. I think it's nice to mention that all three of us are actually currently first generation migrants in the Netherlands. So I think it's interesting that all three of us ended up doing research on diversity in the Netherlands at this very moment. Yeah. And what challenges did you encounter on the way to becoming a researcher? Yeah, I think uh, the challenges I kind of could think of were more about being a researcher, being an interdisciplinary researcher rather than becoming one. Because I, I was having trouble thinking within the borders of just one field. And um, interdisciplinary research is, of course, very much preached, but it's not very much practiced. And at some point I've <laughs> realized why. First of all, of course, there are some communication challenges between scholars from different fields. They might be using different theories, different methodologies, different terminology and so on. Okay, that's fine. I mean, it's just communication differences, right? But the main challenge, I think, was to get accepted within any one field. For instance, at the first year of my PhD, I wrote this one paper applying a novel methodology in educational research. And then I wanted to publish it, of course. And I went to an educational journal and they were like, no, this is uh, very methodological. We cannot accept this. Then I was, okay, then I'll go to a methodology journal. And they, of course, said, this is very educational. <laughs> and it took me six different tries, I think six different journals to finally get it published. And what did you learn from all this? What did you learn along the way? Yeah, I think you named it already, like uh, the value of being persistent and resilient because there will be challenges, there will be setbacks. I think it's important to just keep on keeping on and trying to push forward as, yeah, if you're doing what you think is right and interesting, then just keep on doing it, I would say. So would that also be your advice to other or junior researchers? Definitely. But I would also say don't try to do everything alone. Maybe have a mentor that can show you the ropes along the way if they come from a similar background, for instance. 
maybe they work in a similar field. They've already explored this terrain, right? So they can show you what they've already learned along the way, which would make things much easier for you. And uh, also be proactive, try to take steps towards accomplishing what you want to do, but also don't be afraid to ask for help, right? Don't be afraid to ask questions. You don't have to be the hero and do everything alone. No. <laughs> step by step, right? Step by step. Yeah. Yeah. And take care of yourself, right? Because academia is challenging and demanding and we never have this nine to five job or a very clear cut difference between our weekdays or weekends. Do you have a concrete advice to these researchers for taking care of yourself? What does it mean? When being a junior researcher. Yeah, I think it means getting out of this mindset where you always think about work because part of our work is also thinking and it's hard to shut that off when it's you time, when you're with your friends or whatnot, try to be mindful of that moment and not think about work all the time. Just focus on what's happening in your life and leave work at work if you can. <laughs> I think this brings us nicely to the next section, the present. Things that we think about a lot. <laughs> and that is, of course, also acculturation in your case, but also in my case, for example, also Sabrina, that we are thinking about overall acculturation processes in the country that we live in, but also a bit more theoretically. And so my question is, which paper did you bring today? I brought the paper by Kunst and colleagues. It was published in 2021 and it's named... The Missing Side of Acculturation, How Majority Group Members Relate to Immigrant and Minority Group Cultures. And why is this an outstanding paper? Um, like I've previously mentioned, most research on acculturation focuses on minority group members and their change and adaptation. There are a few papers that also incorporate uh, the majority group members, but they usually look at what the majority group members think the minority members group members should be doing. So, for instance, should they adapt to the new host culture or should they maintain their heritage culture, either or both? But this paper very freshly describes the missing side of acculturation, namely how majority group members also change as a function of their interaction with minority group members. So not just what the majority thinks the minority should be doing, but also how they change themselves. So basically, instead of portraying minority group members as passive receivers of culture, it portrays minorities as also active acculturation agents with their own influence in their environment. So that's a very fresh perspective. And you mentioned already in the past section, but I think I'll repeat it again, the definition of acculturation that we are now working with would be the process of change that happens if individuals and in groups, if they meet in an intercultural instance, so upon first-hand intercultural contact, Yes, extended contact. So, for instance, the tourists coming here wouldn't count, right? It's a very limited time, so it should be an extended contact. And because this is maybe a bit complex, so all of, yeah, acculturation, what does it mean? And the majority-minority group and all of these things. How would you explain this paper to your grandma, for example? Yeah, so this paper talks about how the majority group can adopt parts of minority cultures and how this can eventually lead to changes in society as a whole. And the authors identify factors that can help or hinder this process of majority acculturation. And they describe these factors on three different levels. So firstly, they have the individual level, 
and then the cultural group level, and then the society level. Of course, the main facilitator of majority acculturation is the frequency and quality of intercultural contact. But for instance, at the individual level, having positive attitudes towards diversity, having an open mind can help this process, right? As an example, people who are more willing to try new things, let's say, would be more likely to engage with the food, music, arts of the minority cultures, and uh, eventually they would be more likely to adopt some of these elements, right? And if you have an example for the Netherlands, so then the majority culture will be typical Dutch, a mainstream culture, I would say, and uh, minority culture. So this would mean, for example, that... Um, How likely is it that someone who identifies as Dutch and whose heritage is Dutch, you know, whose parents and grandparents were born in the Netherlands, how likely is it that that person would attend an intercultural event or get in contact, uh, for example, at school with other parents who were maybe born in Morocco or in Turkey and this kind of things then? Yeah, or maybe they would be more likely to just say to an invitation from one of these Moroccan families when they invite them over for dinner, right? So maybe they're a bit more open to these experiences. And once they are in the homes of people from different cultures, they can see it for themselves firsthand um, how people live. And they would be more likely to then take something with them home, right? And then what are other things that make it more likely that the typical mainstream Dutch person? <laughs> yeah, so there is the next level, which is the cultural group level. And at this level, of course, having similarities and differences between groups can have a big impact, right? How similar your culture is quite an important factor in bringing groups together. If there's a lot of cultural distance or what we call ethnic hierarchy between groups, if one group is seen as if they're a bit more lower on the hierarchy, it could be harder for the majority group members to engage with these individuals unless they find a way to mitigate these differences. So the authors mention having a common group identity that can bring people closer to each other. So as an example, instead of focusing on your Germanness or Dutchness, you can focus on your European identity, which would help create an in-group for both of these groups, right? And people are shown to be more empathetic towards their in-group. They're more likely to engage with the in-group. And this would eventually lead to adoption of certain cultural elements more easily if there's this common group identity. And would, for example, Rotterdam identity or an Amsterdam identity, could that also be a way to unite different groups? Yes, definitely. Yes. Anything that could be an encompassing identity over different groups could be used as common in-group identity. It's called a superordinate identity, actually, but I didn't want to get too technical here. It's about bridging these us and them feelings, us and them separation that we tend to have very automatically because of our psychological properties. It's to bridge this and make everybody us, basically, as much as we can. <laughs> and do you mean by that also that when people see commonalities between cultures or something that they have in common, that will help them to be contact or to develop a bound or a relation with each other? Is that what you mean? Yes, definitely. It's sometimes hard to see those going past our differences. So they have to be sometimes explicitly stated and highlighted so that we can bridge those differences. But yes, definitely. Yeah. So both are, in, yeah, as in my research as well. So both are important di differences between cultures, but also commonalities. Exactly. 
And those are called, if I'm correct, in the Kunst paper, they would call this cultural similarity, right? So that is the aspect of the group culture level. Yes, yes. And so you've already set examples for the individual level and the group culture level. And there's a third level, right? Named in this paper. Yes. The third level is the societal level. And the authors talk about societal policies and norms and how they can play a role in facilitating the adoption process for the majority group. And for instance, we can give immigration policies as an example to this level. So if immigration policies favor assimilation, which means complete adoption of the host culture and renouncing the heritage culture, right? You do not show connections to your heritage culture anymore. You are very much committed to the host culture. That's what's expected of you if the policies favor assimilation and they discourage minorities from maintaining their heritage culture, right? Then the chances are much lower for the majority group uh, members to interact with the minority culture because we just don't see them very much anymore. This is a very symbolic example, uh, what I'm going to give now. But as you might know, in the Netherlands, to become a Dutch citizen, you have to renounce all your other citizenships. So this, even if it's symbolic, shows a certain separation from your identity and your heritage culture. So for instance, this, this could be a mild example of an assimilation policy. And um, in more severe examples, then people might just lose their culture lose their heritage culture and just become this melting pot of just one culture, right? So recent developments also are that you are allowed to have another citizenship besides the Dutch one, but only if it's from another European country. So that also gives a sign actually from a very political level, it gives the sign that, well, you can be German and Dutch, no problem for us, but Dutch and Turkish? Mm, I'm not sure if that's what we want. Huh? So it gives a very clear sign to which other citizenships or identities are very welcome <laughs> and uh, which are less valued, maybe, from a political side of view. Or where the boundaries are, right? Yeah, I think this connects very well back to the cultural group level and the ethnic hierarchy we're talking about, right? As long as you're similar, you're welcome to keep your culture heritage. But if you're very different, then we discourage against it because of X and Y reason. So yeah, these levels are of course connected and they interact with each other. And I would now be interested, is there an idea from the authors, Kunsten colleagues, about which of these levels is more important or are these all at all times simultaneously having an influence on how people from the cultural majority approach people from the cultural minority? I think these are all different levels that have simultaneous effects on an individual and how they adapt to their multicultural environment. Again, uh, none of these levels are independent from each other anyways, and at the same time affect the individual. But they do start with the individual themselves and how much they have contact with people from other cultures. So perhaps that's the starting point. And then we have different layers that also regulate those contexts. And they also say it's a bi-directional process, right? Maybe you have positive attitudes towards diversity, so you engage in more intercultural contact. But it also works the other way. The more you engage in intercultural contact, the more positive your attitudes get towards diversity. So it's it works in feedback loops within levels, but also across levels. 
And why is this an important paper, according to you, for the field of diversity research? Because there is already, as you mentioned, quite a lot of research on the minority part of this. How do they maintain the heritage uh, culture? How do they adapt to the majority culture and so on? And how does this now add a new perspective? Yeah, so I think it helps positioning acculturation as a situated process We've just mentioned these different levels of influence on an individual. So a societal level would be, let's say, a context, right? So it doesn't take place in a vacuum, as already mentioned, but it also takes place between members of different groups. I think that's the very important thing about this paper. We do not just focus on the minorities. It's a mutual accommodation process between members of different cultures and they change and adapt based on how each individual changes and adapts or each group changes and adapts. And one thing I think that is also implicit about this is that it kind of counteracts deficit thinking, right? So uh, can you maybe explain this also a bit? Yeah, so deficit thinking is its almost like blaming the victim for anything negative they might be experiencing. And in um, acculturation research, a lot of the research looks at the minority groups and their adaptation psychological outcomes. And if they're experiencing, let's say, stress, then it must be their fault. And I think this paper helps us counteract deficit thinking because it's, it takes the whole responsibility from the minority groups and distributes it over different groups. So it's not just on them to adapt, to change, to acculturate. It's a relational and interactive phenomenon. And does this also connect to research that you are currently busy with? Very much so, actually. <laughs> Because at the moment, I'm looking into how we can apply a complex dynamic systems approach to study acculturation. So complex in the sense that it has multiple interacting components, acculturative agents, acculturation domains, acculturation context, and dynamic in the sense that it is a process and not a state. So it is a constant adaptation to the changes in the acculturation context. This brings us nicely to our next section, the future. Jiren, how can we use this complex dynamic systems where you're talking about in the upcoming years in research? Can you tell us more about it? What are complex dynamic systems? As mentioned, a complex system is made up of many parts that are connected and also depend on each other. So changes in one element would spread over the whole system and create changes in all the other components of a system. And these parts interact in complex and unpredictable ways, creating new behaviors and patterns that cannot be really understood by just looking at individual parts alone. And I think I really need to give an example here to make it clear. Think about an ecosystem, right? We have plants, other animals, insects, microorganisms that all interact with each other. And these interactions determine the food chains we see, the population dynamics, the food webs, and so on. And we cannot understand these outcomes, these patterns that have emerged from these interactions, if we just look at one species. We have to look at them all in interaction with each other, right? Uh, many other research fields in psychology actually applied methods and tools around these complex dynamic systems. And it would be very helpful for us to use them to understand and predict acculturation as an interactive relational phenomenon, right? Everything's connected and everything changes. We see it in developmental, clinical, social and personality psychology, 
And they've been applying these methods and tools to study social and psychological phenomena for a while now. So I think there has to be more interdisciplinary research and collaboration for us to move forward faster because we don't have to reinvent the wheel here. We just have to apply methods that already exist and collaborate with each other to to push science forward. So we definitely need these methods to study change that happens at different levels across different domains and upon interactions between different people. So do I understand correctly that the complex dynamic systems approach is actually a very a way of theory building or like that you try to come up with a theory that combines all the different factors that you know play into a certain phenomenon? Yeah, it has its own assumptions and properties. For instance, it builds on the idea that these interactions are nonlinear and it has emergence phenomena. For instance, these are the properties of complex systems that are usually presented in contrast with the common methods we use that focus on linear and aggregated phenomena. For instance, we currently try to understand group-level acculturation by averaging across individual-level change. This implies that we are just aggregating things and think that everything is linear, right? But we cannot actually do that because a Turkish person coming to the Netherlands can acculturate without any changes to the overall culture right? Or the other way around. So we cannot just aggregate individual level change to understand group level phenomena. Another question that brings up is what does it tell us to know the average way <laughs> that individuals coming from Turkey adapt to the Netherlands? Let's say like for one example, what does that tell us for an individual, what they are going through the individual? Maybe some people might struggle with the transition, some not at all. So just to give an example, just by looking at the average way of how people of a certain group react to a certain situation that might not give us so many interesting insights for an individual, at least. No, actually not at all. And most of the time, these averages are calculated based on a group of individuals that are not always representative and that are measured in one time point in their trajectory. Right, So we have to have a more dynamic approach and based on interactions between individuals rather than just aggregating people on the basis of a measurement that was taken at one point in their life. Because then we imply that acculturation is a state, right? It's not a state, it's a process. It's a process of change. So like you've mentioned, it doesn't tell us much to just look at this average score across individuals. That really doesn't say much about just one individual's process of acculturation or it's their interaction with other people and how that gives rise to group level patterns. And which crucial questions then remain? Yeah, I think connects very well to your previous points that now we have this challenge to understand the connection between individual and group level acculturation. Because as we mentioned, we cannot just aggregate individual level change to understand group level phenomena. Yet, most policy actions are taken based on group level patterns because nobody's going to pass an, a policy based on one individual, right? So now we have to kind of make this connection by approaching acculturation as a system that operates at different levels and that feeds each other and that had connections to each other, but it's not a linear connection. It's a complex dynamic. And I find it also interesting because we talk about group level acculturation, but can we still talk about group level? If we're, for instance, in a super diverse city such as Rotterdam and Amsterdam, I mean, 
that's more individual, right? So that's a bit my, yeah, the question that I have. Yeah, I think eventually new cultures emerge from the interactions between people who come from a certain cultural background. We cannot necessarily say now it's the same A culture or B culture. It's a new emergent culture from the interactions of people. So indeed, maybe we shouldn't even say it's a group level, but it's just a more global level pattern. Actually, the terminology is micro and macro level. So micro level interactions and macro level patterns. This sounds all really complex. <laughs> so it, of course, it's called complex dynamic systems. I understand. But it sounds when I would now try to think, how would you do any kind of research on this? I would wonder, can you at the same time, you know, research the individual on the micro level and then the different influences and then on the, what's happening on the macro level? Like, what does this now mean? What kind of research can you do with this? Well, um, actually, my next step is to simulate interactions between individuals from different cultures with certain attributes. So, for instance, their attitudes, norms, values, beliefs, language, abilities, religiosity, everything could be their attributes. And based on these attributes, people come closer or diverge from each other, right? And then you can simulate these interactions to see what kind of patterns emerge at a more global macro level. And you can see how these patterns change based on the changes you impose on certain parameters. So, for instance, I can change contextual factors how much intercultural contact a context affords. Is it very segregated? Is it not segregated, right? I can change these parameters to see how the patterns at the global level change. So there are these computer programs you can use to simulate such interactions with their basis as complex dynamic systems. Yeah, well, to bring us a little back to a bit less complex terms and theories, what changes would you like to see in the upcoming years regarding academia in general? I think the pressure to publish still continues, especially for early career researchers. And that could be a hindrance for innovative thinking, because I believe that people are less likely to go and explore new ideas, learn about new methods if they don't feel safe in their current basis. So I would like to see less of this pressure to publish and more of innovative thinking, more quality than quantity. And I think this also connects a bit to the other challenges that researchers have right now, which is to juggle many tasks at once. So many people are trying to research, teach, apply to grants, have sometimes administrative tasks, they have their personal life. It's a lot to ask. So I wish there were less of this pressure and more of what people actually like doing <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> Would you have an advice to academia, for instance? How can they help researchers in doing this? It's a very structural problem. I think we just need more resources allocated to the universities and in education in general so that there are more positions available and people are not in so much competition or the universities can hire specific individuals to do specific tasks and researchers don't have to juggle all these different tasks at once. So I hope we have that at some point. <laughs> so maybe one final question uh, with all of these difficulties in mind. How do you stay motivated in your job as a researcher? Yeah, I am very lucky to do research on the topics that I choose and are of particular interest and relevance to me. They personally affect me, but also help me understand myself. 
So that's very engaging and motivating in general. But I also greatly enjoy learning and thinking and teaching. And I think being a researcher is it's a good way of doing all of these things. I almost enjoy this artistic process of connecting things that may not be very connectable for other people. Maybe the patterns are not very apparent for everybody. So I enjoy that part. And I also enjoy discussing these with my students with my colleagues, which also bring new perspectives and ideas. It's just a very fun process. That's how I keep myself going on this. <laughs> Thank you, Jelen, for joining us today and for helping us increase visibility of outstanding social scientists such as yourself, and of course, of cutting edge research on the topics of diversity. So thank you all for listening and talk soon. We want to thank Minor Revisions for the music, Max Kersten for post-production, Lotte Koeman for logo design, and Zeynep Alpay for artwork. Make sure to visit our website for bonus materials and to follow us on social media at Researching Diversity Podcast. Stay tuned and talk soon! Music